Welcome to Think Like an Owner, a show exploring how the most ambitious CEOs grow great companies. I'm your host, Alex Bridgman. Each week, I dive into the strategies and tactics that build transformative businesses with the operators doing it firsthand. You can learn more about the guests and the companies they are building by visiting us at tlaopodcast.com. There, you will also find our weekly newsletter that further analyzes how companies are finding success today. Lastly, if you enjoy Think Like an Owner, please share this podcast with a peer and leave us a review. This episode was a live episode recorded at a joint event in Chicago between the Booth and Kellogg Business Schools. My guest was Doug Cook, chairman of several companies throughout Illinois in Windows and Siding, Chimney Care, Garages, Elevators, and more, with his most notable business being the Windows and Siding business, Feldco. Doug gives a deeper walkthrough of his very impressive and entrepreneurial career at the start of our conversation. We also talk deeply about empathy and how to develop it as a skill, empathy when building a team and selling to customers, trust and respect as a CEO, lessons that are hardest to be taught and you just need to learn them, and much more. Doug is a fantastic person. I think that will come through loud and clear throughout the episode. Please enjoy this live episode in Chicago with Doug Cook. When it comes to accounting, quality of earnings reports, and financial due diligence, it's vital to have a partner who understands your business and what you're trying to accomplish. Jerry Joe and his team at Hood & Strong in San Francisco have a specialty for search funds and lower middle market private equity, with multiple podcast guests today trusting them with their partnership. Email jerry at jzhou at hoodstrong.com and visit their search fund landing page at hoodstrong.com to learn more. For advice and observations on accounting for small companies, here's Jerry himself to share his expertise on today's Q&A. How is a quality of earnings different from an audit? Well, there are a lot of similarities between an audit and a quality of earnings analysis, and namely in that both are a form of verification on the numbers, on the, the financial statements of the business. The audit conforms to a different framework of standards. It's very, in general speaking, it's not as flexible, and it's usually being done on a calendar year, a fiscal year and basis. The quality of earnings analysis is... You, is often the objective is different in that it's um, focused on the business as it near the transaction. That's there is a sale or purchase of the business, and it can be flexible in evaluating the business through the most trading twelve months. So the cutoff is different, and as far as the adjustments that are usually being proposed or made to the financial statements. And that includes the customary accounting adjustment just to conform to an uh, accounting standards, but also includes other type of adjustments that what we call normalizing adjustments. These would include adding back non-recurring expenses, one-time expenses, discretionary spend, um, or what we call them as personal expenses that are run through smaller business. And there are also certain types of performer adjustments we make. If there's any change, for example, to the cost structure of this business is because now you the company has raised the salary and wages of all your employees, and now we need to take that into consideration and recast that type of adjustment and burden the company historically. And that is not something that an audit itself would be strived to, to accomplish to, to give that view. And I would say, you know, the focus on the quality of earnings is namely on the revenue profile, the, the earning capability of basically the P&L, the income statement, as opposed to the audit that will be largely driven and focused on the balance sheet aspect 
of the company. So the objective is different between the two. And because of that, the scope is a little bit different. And that could also include you know, analysis around working capital that's done on a QOV, but not being done on an audit. Excellent. Thank you, Jerry. To learn more about Hood & Strong, please reach out to Jerry directly at jzhou at hoodstrong.com and visit their search fund landing page at hoodstrong.com for more information. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Ravix Group and Oberly Risk Strategies for supporting the show. And now to the episode. Most folks are, I think, fairly familiar with, with who you are, but I think if for anyone listening, they're probably not nearly as familiar as anyone, the average person in this room would be. would love to just start there and hear more about your background, businesses you've run, career to this point, and involvement in these schools here too. Sure. I am Doug Cook. I'm a 1998 graduate of Kellogg. I spent the first part of my career working in broadcasting for ABC and, and other companies in that space. And I went back to grad school with the intention of utilizing it to, to catalyze something a little bit more robust that hopefully would take me beyond my 20s. So when I was at Kellogg, I was really inspired by the limited range of entrepreneurial subjects they had at that point. One class was something called entrepreneurial finance, and the professor was a guy by the name of Steve Rogers. And it was always rated as one of the highest classes at Kellogg, but you couldn't get in there until it was, you know, your subject, rather your class number 17, 18, 19. So it was kind of near the end. And if you really had a passion for it, it was something you couldn't really explore until you were almost out the door. So I, I was doing that and I, Lo and behold, got the class, and it was, I believe, my second-to-last quarter at, at Kellogg. And for anybody that's that's done the evening program like I did as an MBA student, working all day and then going to school at night was somewhat of a trudge, and, and it was it was a long—made for a long day. And so when I was up in my higher-number classes at Kellogg about to graduate, you kind of knew how to feel, how to roll, and how to make it all work. And you were, it was, it was pretty, classes became somewhat transactional. And when I took this entrepreneurial finance class, it was one of those classes that I literally sat in and three hours would go by and it was like, boom. So you get different signals in life about things and connections and likes and dislikes. That was one of my very first things that maybe I should think about this entrepreneurial subject a little bit deeper than maybe I have to date. And so it was at that point where I pretty much stopped looking for anything in a corporate world position. I stayed doing what I was doing in broadcasting at the end of the day. It paid me well. I enjoyed it, but it wasn't going to be something that was going to sustain me for forever. So rather than go to school in the evening, I kind of supplanted my MBA program with an acquisition search. I didn't, I should say, I didn't have a a partner. I didn't have an idea to go and start something up. But what I did have was a few bucks that I I had made from an earlier real estate transaction a few, a few years earlier. And I wasn't married at the time. And I figured, okay, let's, let's dig a little bit deeper into this whole entrepreneurship through acquisition thing that, that we, we spent some time talking about in this one class. And so finished my degree, went back and and talked to the professor. And he gave me three or four different people to talk to, all of whom were intended to do a scared straight speech. And they were all rooted in failure, miserable experiences. You know, they were lucky to be alive and all this kind of stuff. 
Steve wanted me to go and visit with these people, then come back and report back to him. I think he was, you know, obviously testing to see if I had the stamina to kind of, you know, learn a little bit more. So it was at that point that I, I did a few more of those things and I passed the test and I was introduced to a business broker, a friend of Steve's, as well as a few other people to kind of evaluate. I figured I needed somewhat of a shaman to kind of walk me through this process of acquisition that I was going to embark upon. So I found a terrific guy that was highly recommended and we clicked and we spent two years working together on evaluating businesses. And this is back in 1999 and and 2000. I was working full time and I looked at probably 150 different businesses over this couple of years. I'd made site visits to probably 40 or 50 of them. I made three different offers every one of which was was rejected. I learned some real tough lessons along the way of what not to do. I thought I was a real hot shit when I started the process and I thought I had all the answers and a lot of people would be interested in selling me their businesses only to have them slam the door in my face. And so you learn along the way that it's it's not a linear process and there's a, there's a lot of stops and starts and you as a person and you as a professional have to do some growing. And so I'd like to think that kind of transpired over those years of 99 and 2000. And it culminated when I met Bernie Feld through an introduction that was kind of a, you know, a, a mistake. I met a guy that was looking to sell his business and just so happened had a business that was going to be a pretty good fit for me. And it was a pretty affordable thing. And so the lesson I took was that you never know what's out there. So you better put yourself out there. And Bernie was selling because he was looking to retire. He had a nice local business that was dusty. It wasn't rusty. It wasn't a failing business. It had a older, but very dedicated staff of people. And it had a simplicity about it that I thought fit me a first time entrepreneur or aspiring entrepreneur very well. It checked a lot of boxes that I was interested in and in pursuing as an entrepreneur. And so I spent the better part of the year of 2000, you know, trying to get that deal across the finish line. And I finally closed on it on October 6th of 2000. Feldco, when I bought it 22 plus years ago, was about an $8 million business doing a lot of things in and around the Chicagoland area in the home improvement space. Beyond windows, siding, and doors, we were doing kitchen cabinet refacing, patio enclosures, roofing, decking, you name it. Whatever, you know, whatever you could you know, do to make a buck to, to, to do some things and, and be a bigger business, let's do it. I learned a thing or two, came in and, and knew nothing about this. I was the visitor on their home, home turf. And basically, I got lucky. You know, I walked right into the dot-com bubble bursting in 9-11, literally a few months after I started. And so I was met literally by a, a big storm. But at the same time, I was informed by some pretty tough realities. We made it through and we made it through 08 and we got bigger and better and we faced COVID and we got bigger and better. The company that we have known as Feldco today is a, what I'll call more simpler, refined company than the $8 million that, you know, Chicago centric company that, that, that I, I bought 23 years ago. Today, it's a market. It's a business that serves 10 different distinct markets in four different states. We only really sell four products, window siding, door and roofing. And we're, you know, we're north of 125 million in annual revenues. And that's just Feldco. It's also given us the opportunity to buy businesses in the home security space and exit very successfully there. It's given us the opportunity to go and start up some some consumer finance companies that we've done very well with. 
as well as getting some into some other spaces too in the in the B2C home service space that we we to this day still appreciate with. So it's been a great ride. It's never it never is at the place today that I thought it was going to be, you know, when I began this 23 years ago, that I've way exceeded those wildest imaginations. But I think the big lesson that I would take over my entrepreneurial career is you're not going to win the game unless you're in it. Don't be afraid of failing because those are going to be some of your best learnings. Just make sure they're hopefully earlier in your career rather than later. And don't ever underestimate the importance of people because they are your path to success. Is there a mistake you made early on that didn't, you know, end the game for you, but today might have been, like you mentioned, being like, make the mistake when you're young versus when you're old. Like, is yeah. there, is, is your, is your question specifically about my search or about my operation operations. after I bought the business? Yeah. Operations. Okay. So, so it'd be like, you caught the rabbit. Now you got to figure out what to do with it. Right. Yes. Okay. So yeah, there's there's a slew of those, and most of them are originated with my mouth. So <laughs> you realize real quickly that you shut your mouth, and and most of the problems start because of loose lips. So one of the things that that I learned real early was less is more. Keep your ears open, your eyes open. Always be available. Always, always, yeah, be there to to inspire, to lead, but don't be there to answer questions per se. You're better off, and this is a big learning of mine, when asked a question, respond with one. Provoke thought. Don't provide answers. Get people to help solve answers and get to where you are from a thought prospect. If you want to bring people along, you want to develop a staff, you've got to get people to think critically and to be curious and that's a big part of your job as a leader. And so I know all of us at various points in life would rather just give the answer to move on for, you know, for, you know, for just being quick and, and like, listen, I don't have time to explain this right now. Just do it this way. That's a missed opportunity for future gain. And that's where I'm getting at. And so those are some of my very early lessons. You youthful exuberance, you just want to get stuff done and sometimes bypass some of those important learnings that you otherwise could benefit long term from. Yeah, I've had that even in my own chief of staff role where early on I'm, you know, six months in, I'm only, I'm still just asking questions because I'm trying to learn about the business. And then, you know, 12 months in, like, oh, okay, I know a few things now. Like maybe a statement works now. Maybe I can like give answers. Oh, nope, still don't know anything. I'm actually still dumb. Still ask questions. Yeah. The, the key is getting the answers to the questions and knowing the truthful answers. And that's often found early on in your entrepreneurial career where you're doing it yourself, not relying upon other people to provide you answers or to provide you responses. In a really, really solid entrepreneurial early stage experience, you, the lead dog, are out there pursuing the answers because in reality, you knowing what the truth is, is really important. Not only because somebody else may not know it. And therefore, if they're telling you something that may not be the truth and like, there you go, that's just the, the, the start of a, of a really bad connection. So early on in your career, that's, it's back to that youthful thing, you know, do roll up your sleeves early. That's where you can inform yourself and get, get a little bit wise and by the way, just because you know the answer, don't ever let them know you know the answer. It's one other test that you can provide down the way when you ask those questions. Oh, really? Why is it that way? See if they know the answer. And if they don't, help them get there. But don't give them the answer. It's the old teaching fish. Don't give them the fish. Any particular 
time where that's happened to you come to mind the most when you think about that mistake? Stressful, stressful moments where there's a lot going on and you feel uh, almost an energy, uh, kind of a, a a surge to get something done and move on. And, and, and in, in some cases to achieve that, you know, check that box so we can get on to the next thing you might make in, you know, a short term, a quick decision that's going to have negative long-term consequences. And so when the pressure gets, gets, gets turned up, it's, it's important for the leader to slow things down as best they can to make solid decisions. Some of those decisions may need to still be made fast and rapidly but not every one of them, hopefully. And if you can can get into a point where if you, it's almost like a, a a baseball batter that can can see the 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 laces on a ball coming to them to be able to differentiate between a fastball and a curveball or a slider, they can see that a really fine hitter can do that. A fine executive, a fine leader, can have the same similar skills within their business to understand what is the tell for what's coming and how do you need to be prepared before you may need to be. Yeah, diving into that more, you've spent a lot of time with a lot of different CEOs and met some very successful CEOs too. I'd love to hear about what are some skills that you see in common across great CEOs? What anything come to mind in terms of similar skill sets or the way they approach problems? So I'll answer that two different ways. I've had good fortune in my life to be around exceptional CEOs legendary CEOs. The qualities that make them excellent, legendary CEOs are different than the people that may be exemplary entrepreneurs. There's still quality leadership traits that are uh, transferable, no question about it. But in a large corporate CEO titan type, the skills that that person needs to bring to their game every day is different than the person that's basically working in a small business where the factory's in back and, you know, AR and it's, it's, it's a different deal. It's, it's just, it's a lot more impactful from the standpoint of the skills that you need to be able to deal with that. You know, the, the, the big, the big corporate CEO is, is answering in some cases, wall street, you know, the, the, the entrepreneur is playing on main street and the reality is there to a rather simple degree, but there is a skill set difference. And I know some wonderful CEOs, big, big CEOs that could never be a, an entrepreneurial CEO. They, they wouldn't want to be, it just wouldn't be a good fit for them. And commensurately, I know really good entrepreneurial CEOs that would never be able to to, to be a, a corporate CEO, the discipline and, and, and type of things that need to be brought to that. So that's how I would, I would answer it. It's, it's, it's a little bit different for the two, both leaders, but there's some real, there's some re- very refining characteristics between the two. Do you think there's some danger then in, as an entrepreneurial CEO, searcher, buying a small business, studying how a public company CEO might run their business or Absolutely. their team? Absolutely. Jack Welsh isn't an entrepreneur per se. So go and reading, you know, one of Jack Welsh's book is wonderful book is great. Tremendous CEO, tremendous leader, lots to say, lots of great stuff in there for entrepreneurial CEOs to take, but the, the, his approach wouldn't necessarily work in a, you know, in a small entrepreneurial setting per se of a, of a machine shop or a, you know, a Feltco type of business. I mean, if I, if I tried to, you know, employ some of Jack Welsh's approaches to the way in which he him, himself would have, you know, 
it just, it wouldn't have rolled because I don't have a GE staff working for me for starters. I mean, like, you know, it's just a little different. I have people with very different educational backgrounds and life experiences as part of my team than a corporate infrastructure like GE. So you got to know your audience and you got to, you got to calibrate accordingly, but good leadership skills are ubiquitous. Those are, those are uniform, but they are different roles. What about skills for that entrepreneurial CEO role that an MBA student could attempt to study and replicate and add to their own tool toolkit prior to going to run a business? Mm -hmm. Great question. Range. Personal range. Let's start with that. Somebody that in and of themselves can sit down with a diverse group of people and be comfortable. Just starting with that, because an entrepreneur is going to have to deal with people through the acquisition process. It's going to be a very diverse set of people. And if you are fortunate enough to be successful in your entrepreneurial pursuits of acquisition, you're going to have a business one day that's going to be filled with people and you better understand how those relationships are, are going to work and how they're calibrated. It's, I can guarantee you CEOs of large corporations don't have the body odor questions that, that may find their way to my desk. Or, you know, somebody, somebody, you know, is upset because they had a catalytic converter stolen out of their car in the parking lot. It's little business, little problems, big business. They don't even like forget it. Like that's a different league. And understanding that is important. Is that a practice you think can be developed over time before right. stepping into a business? Yeah. The how how does it, I, I'm always a big believer in how someone's informed. How, what's what's their life story? What 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 brought you to this point? How'd you grow up? What why'd you go to this school? Why'd you not go to that? Why'd you do this summer job? Do that summer job? What why do you want to do this? What what about this this entrepreneurial thing is appealing to you? And there's, I'm sure we all know people out there that want to do it because it sounds cool, right? They, they, it's ink, you know, hey, I want to be an ink magazine. I want to, I, I want to be, you know, the next greatest, hottest thing that this is it. Great. I love that. That's, that's a, that's a good start. Right. But I also want to be a great baseball player. I have no business playing baseball. Okay. My point is, is you got to make sure that your your want is really going to fit you. So going back to some of these qualities that matter, you know, education matters. You want you you, you want to have somebody. That, I'm not saying you, you got to have you know Harvard MBA or you know, Kellogg MBA or Chicago MBA. They help, but I know some pretty successful entrepreneurs that don't have a college education. Okay, so you know, getting back to that whole point about range, like. I've seen a lot of elitism, if you will, snobbiness that, you know, from people that, well, I don't really like this business or, you know, that guy, he's just going to have a college education. Yeah. <laughs> he can run circles around you. He's, he's funny. Like, you know, he's, he's, he's brilliant that way. So the people that can, can kind of be aware that there's always somebody smarter, wealthier, and have a better idea than them out there, like tone down the ego, a lot of us have been pretty successful in our careers getting us to where we have here, but the competition starts getting a little steeper and having that humble reality that, that they may be across the table from you and you've got a lesson, lesson or thing to learn here. 
take that and always have that confidence in your abilities. Don't lose that, but don't get overconfident. Some other skills that are very important to identify early on. How do you handle adversity? What does that mean? Well, what happens if you found out there was a gunman in your building? What happens if you find out that there is a cocaine problem in your company? What happens when you find out your CFO's sleeping with the sales director's wife? You don't want to deal with that in most cases, right? Like, OMG, what this is, this is what I signed up for. This isn't why you guys invested the time. It's those kinds of things that can take you off course. Getting back to the range and just real, just understanding the reality. When in Rome, guys, this is what can happen. Just accept it. If you don't want to deal with the, 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 the random incomings, then being an entrepreneur isn't for you. So if you don't really like adversity and all that, I tell you that that's one of those things that entrepreneurship is filled with. You know, the reason that the success is so great in, in entrepreneurship is because some of the adversity can be really painful, which makes that good stuff really even tastier. Another thing that's really important is stamina. Stamina is something that I can't, I can't speak enough about. Well, how do you evaluate stamina? Well, understand someone, someone's ability to with, with, withstand enormous pressure, really endure things. Stamina is very important to get through situations where you, you may go and buy a company that requires an, an, an inordinate amount of turnaround or you need to really dive in deep. You're going to be put to the test. You're going to be put in places that you never imagined being with people you never imagined being potentially doing things you never imagined, crawling around, connecting cables on a floor one night, asking yourself, what am I doing? Well, what you're doing here is you're building your business and you're showing your team what you do, how you roll, and we're going to do anything we're going to take to win. This isn't about you suddenly regressing in your life. You're, you're going to become some sort of a, you know, a, 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 you know, an hourly employee. That's not where I'm suggesting. But it's those kinds of moments that you have when you've got to dig deep and stamina is absolutely one of the most important things that, that, that I've ever seen real successful entrepreneurs nail is just that it's like they have a, they have a different level of, of what their fuel tank is like. They, they have like a reserve on their reserve on their reserve. The, the, other, the other things that I would, would tell you too about, about people is understand their influences. What do I mean? Understand what influences them. Here's a good start. Who's the first person they talk to in the morning and who's the last person they talk to before they go to bed? If you have a partner or you have somebody with you that's you know, in a relationship, you better understand that that partner of your partner is your partner. And they got to be on your team and they got to be dedicated to your cause. I have seen repeatedly where good things come undone because the third party that significant other, a wife, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, a husband, whatever, isn't invested and becomes turned on the environment, turned on the opportunity and views the company or you as the leader as the problem. 
and you need that. And it's, it's, it's a, it becomes a, it becomes like a multidimensional game. It becomes very difficult to fight. In fact, there's no winning it in some cases. So there's a lot of little things like that, that you don't really think of until you realize, you know, like, oh no, this is, this really does matter. How could this matter? Well, it does matter because it matters. It's a fact because it's happening. I accept the fact that you don't want it to happen or I don't want it to happen, but it's happening and you got to deal with it. And that's kind of some of those realities of you, you really need to dig deep and pour through. Yeah, a common theme through all of those is this idea of empathy and this skill and ability to have empathy for others. Talk about range, working with that third party, that spouse or that partner of the partner. How do you develop a, a skill of empathy and how do you refine it over time? <laughs> I love to steal good ideas. Okay, what does that mean? Well, somebody once gave me an idea that went like this. Make sure all your key staff's kids have great birthdays. So make sure you send them big cookie bouquets on their birthdays. The kids like that. A lot of things. Ways in which you can show that you know they have a life beyond their desk, their office, that you too are human. Here's one. I had an employee, I've had many employees that have passed away over the years. But this was early on in my career, okay? So early on in my time at Feldco, I had an employee who died. And there was a wake the night before and then a service the next morning followed by a, like a reception, a, a funeral procession and then a, like a lunch reception thing. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's like a full day of commitment. Right? Wow, that's, that's a lot. So... I'm like, okay, will I go to the wake or do I do the funeral? Like, which, which one do I do? And so I remember sitting there, I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll do the funeral. That, that would make more sense. Just like, if you can't do the night before, you go to the funeral. And so I, I called up somebody who knew me pretty well. And I said, so what do you, what do you recommend? And, and this person says to me, well, what are you, what are you thinking? What, you know, rather than answering the question, they said, what are you thinking? I said, well, I think I'm going to do the, the funeral and, and the, the events during the day on, on Tuesday or something rather than do the, the wake on, on Saturday or rather the night before. And the person asked me, okay, what, what went into that decisioning? And I said, well, you know, the wake is, is way out in Northwest Chicago and it's like a, you know, it's like an hour and a half to get out there during rush hour and then to turn around and get back out there is like, oh, okay, all right. And person hears me explain all this and they said, well, when would it occur to you to go to everything and not miss a beat? Because I guarantee you not be, you not being there would be more noticed than you being there. You're not doing this for notice sake but you're doing it for the right sake. And if this guy worked for you, what's an extra hour or two? And that's nonsense. And sometimes you need to have some people slap you upside the head. And that was a small thing that actually doesn't go unnoticed. And it's one of my things. I, death is, is a big thing in people's lives. It's it's something that I very much honor with 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 people and their families and 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 so forth. So 
that's something that I always give people a very long leash with is to build that empathy to your to your words, to understand that this is a this is at the end of the day a, a business where I ask a lot of people, but I'm also willing to give back. And 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 so in those darkest of hours, you go and do things to to do things that show that this is a, a human organization serving humans, made of humans. And that's a small tale, but you go to the whole funeral, the wake, everything, because that guy was always showing up for you or that lady was showing up for you. And that's the message you send is a true leader is somebody who doesn't ever pull back. It seems like a hard thing to do if it's not also genuine, if it's not something you also totally actually care about. Like if you're going because this is an appearance thing and make me look good and you measure every empathetic action or decision that way, that that feels like it would break down quickly. Very. Oh, if, Listen, if you're, it goes to say, like, if you're, if you're a fraud, that's like a, an immediate disqualifier. You're, you're, you're going to be, you're going to be unearthed real easily. It's just, it's it, being an entrepreneur is so intensive. It's 24 seven. You're going to be revealed. You, it's, it's impossible for you to keep a game face up all the time and not be somebody who you are. Okay. Warts and all people are going to see you for even your bad stuff. You know, you're impatient, you're impulsive, you're a smoker, you, you, you know, all your frailties, you know, part of your job is also, how do you make those some of your strengths? Like, you know, that's one of those things. For example, I've been known to have a cigarette here and there. My staff loves it <laughs> when they see me smoking with them. It's crazy. If there's a group out back or we're like at a retreat somewhere, you can be damn well sure I'll go catch a cigarette with some of the people. It's like, you wouldn't believe it. It's, it's like, this guy's real. This, you know, he does, you know, it's like, okay, I shouldn't be smoking a cigarette, but it's, you want to, you want a fun thing. It's a, it's a, you, you get unbelievable, you know, moments with people. It's the, those, those little things that you wouldn't think that would bear that, but there you go. Take a, you know, a, a cookie bouquet to a guy's kids or a lady's, lady's daughter, whatever it might be, a graduation present to somebody that, that is doing something. They go a long way. They go a long way. So having empathy and understanding what's going on in someone's life and world is very important to making a company work, especially the way we run ours. You're saying you bring cigarettes to kids' birthday parties? And- uh, yeah, I haven't done that, but uh, no, I probably wouldn't. I probably wouldn't advocate that. I may hear something about that, but no, there's 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 some other fun things we've done over the years that people really people like it when you let your hair down. That's you know, if you're real and genuine. Right. You know, it's 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 not that way all the time. And so let's let's have some fun with it. And I may like it to be that way more often than not. But you got to also kind of draw the line and say, listen, this is, you know, yeah, this is this is a work relationship. We got to be you know, we got to be appropriate. But at the same time, people, again, know your audience, know what you can do. And I'm not suggesting, you know, go out there and be an idiot, but have fun with it. Is there a line where you become too personal with your employees if you're trying to be empathetic and being a part of their personal lives to some extent? How do you know where maybe you're going too far and it looks like special treatment and starts to change work dynamics in a negative way? It's something that can happen, yeah. And I would venture to say it's probably one le- it's probably only a one and done. Like you're going to you're going to get burned by a pretty good one time and you're going to realize it's going to it's going to chase you to do that ever again. Just out of fear and just just like okay, I don't want to go down that path again. You, you try not to have it turn around and and fall into the category of no good deed goes left unpunished. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a painful lesson. 
What about with customers, like empathy with customers and oh. products selling? How does how does empathy factor in, and how does it how do you use empathy with a, a customer or a prospect versus your team? Well, one of the things that informs our company's role is is we want to achieve a, a, a concept called customer delight. We want our customers to be delighted, not satisfied not receiving what they expected. We want them delighted. We want them really excited about the completion of their project. And we work really hard to achieve that. Reality also offers us up that we're human and we make mistakes. And in our world, success is often defined by, you know, a measurement that could be off by a very small degree. Something wouldn't fit. We couldn't get it installed. We had to reorder. It just takes a little bit longer. And then you launch into like a, you know, remake and just, you know, a little bit of, a, of, a, of an inconvenience. We want people feeling really good. Most people come in and spend anywhere between eight and $10,000 with us out of the gates. It's a big amount of money. And I tell people all the time, I don't spend eight and $10,000 with much frequency. So you, as an, you as a, as a sales representative need to have empathy for that customer, how hard they work to earn that money. And, you know, you're working to, to earn that from them and never violate that trust. Always build on empathy. You know, make sure that, that, that you don't take that money that evening and never, never show up for that customer again. Make sure that customer knows who you are. We have all kinds of systems and procedures that really do build empathy into our system. And we want, we want our staff to connect with the customers because it is an emotional purchase, believe it or not. We're going in and screwing with people's homes and families. And in most cases, that's their single largest asset. So it's a, it's a, pretty, it's a pretty sensitive situation. Yeah, certainly. How close as a CEO do you try to be with customers, with the direct customer who's paying for their their home remodel or new window or mm-hmm. what have you? It was easier earlier when it was smaller. And I was in my absorb, absorb, absorb mode and I sunk my teeth into everything because I wanted to make everything about the business my business and understand what was going on, why it was going on. And we also had a different size back then, so it, it, it made it easier to, to do that. I would tell you that today, I know what's going on with customers. I don't have the same level of stickiness with it as I may have 10, 15 years ago. We have pretty developed systems from a, just a, an, an IT perspective that give me a pretty good handle on things from a, a data standpoint, and I can understand where things are at. And at the end of the day, I make sure my office is situated right next to the sales room. So I know exactly who's coming and going, and I have a good sense on the pulse of the business. So I, I try to make the customers front and center because that's ultimately what pays the bills. Yeah. How do you tell that? How do you coach CEOs that maybe are starting in their businesses recently or just peers of yours? Like how do, is there a common sense for how close to customers you should be? I think it depends upon the business. You know, is it B2B, B2C? What, you know, are you doing, doing remote work? Are you doing 50 states? Are you in one market? Is it, so kind of the definition of a, of a business, business matters there. What I would say as a marketing guy, which I am, the the customer is is I make it very much I put myself out there a lot. Okay, I like going out to shopping shopping centers. I like going to conventions. I like seeing what's out there. I like seeing how people respond. So 
the knowledge of the customer, data, physical observation, all of that is really important to what we do, how I've rolled over the years. Everybody has a customer to some degree. Some are a little bit defined differently. And so that CEO versus me versus somebody else, kind of do it your own way. But we have the general market consumer. Uh, it's We have Joe and Jane Sixpack as our, as our general customer and, and how we go about digging into that. And that's my background as a marketing professional too. So I really like that. It, it, it connects with me. And maybe that speaks a little bit about putting yourself in a position where you can succeed and knowing that you got to have a passion. At least I did. That's something I've you know come to learn is in my entrepreneurial discoveries. I like the customer and the dynamic of the customer. If... There's an executive out there that doesn't appreciate the customer, understand the customer, have empathy for the customer. Like, you better watch out here. It's going to be a little bit of a problem. They're kind of important to the overall equation. So putting yourself out there, or if not yourself, finding your way to put your tentacles out there to get that information from the customer is pretty damn important. Otherwise, you're going to go and cocoon yourself and isolate yourself and lose touch with reality. At the start of our conversation, you talked about going from many products to four core products and granted over many, a larger regional area, but how did you refine your product lineup to a core of four or a handful? Very early on, I was in the office one, one Saturday afternoon and I got a phone call from uh, an employee of ours whom I didn't know, but he was an employee because it was very early on. And he said that that he was at a job site and the police were there and he was going to be arrested. And I said, why are you being arrested? And he went on to say that he didn't have the proper certification necessary to do all the work that he was was put out there to do on this given day. And that the good news is, is that uh, he hasn't been arrested yet. And if I get there fast enough, I think I can probably avoid arrest. And it's, I'm only two blocks from the office, so please come and help me. What do we do there, right? So one of the lessons I learned very early on was that this happened because we were trying to do something we knew nothing about. And this guy was out at a job site, and we were trying to skirt the law, and we were doing some sort of a roofing system on a house that we had no business doing. And somebody sold this project to make some money. And now I've got the police, you know, knocking on my door. I've got a guy, an employee that's threatening arrest, and, you know, who knows what else. And a customer that, you know, ultimately entered into a contract with us that thinks they're getting something that we're not going to be able to deliver them. I mean, this is like a nuclear scenario. How did this happen? So... I learned very early on that we had to rein in what it is we were selling. We needed to simplify our product lines. What we were doing and and the products we were selling were too diversified and we were trying to go too many people or too many ways to too many people. And it just led to an inordinate amount of possible outcomes and disasters. So you know, in learning and churning through a lot of this stuff, I realized that in order for us to grow, we needed to cut and we needed to cut product offerings. We needed people to learn a lot more about fewer items and become experts on them. And that's really what we did was, was kind of, you know, get rid of a lot of the clutter, a lot of the static, a lot of the, the blurred lines and really made it like very clear, black and white. This is what we do. And there's a lot what we don't do, but we're going to do our damnedest for you if you fall into the group of, of things that we can deliver for. 
Yeah, it seems to be the opposite of many search journeys where folks will add products to their company over time as a part of expansion. But in cutting products, what factors might get a product cut? Quality, that we can't produce a or deliver a quality product for a customer. That's always a big big lookout that, listen, someone's calling us to improve their lives. And if we're doing something or we're installing something that isn't doing that, we're in trouble. Okay. So we got to have sound products installed by real good professionals. And so if there was any problems with what I would consider product quality or the ability to succeed accordingly, we ducked, we got rid of some stuff, patio enclosures, roofing systems, decking systems. There were a lot of different things. Kitchen cabinet refacing was something that we used to have in our product line when I arrived. Yeah, I made a few bucks every year, but the bigger problem was the problems they caused and the, the distractions that, you know, uh, something that may be a, you know, an 810 share uh, contributor product has taken, you know, 50% of our time to try and rectify and it's delivering a 35 margin. I mean, it's like, forget it. What are we doing here? This is, you know, this thing owns us and it's, we're, we're a slave to bad. So, we looked at things that we didn't cut everything all at once. We, we took a pretty careful approach because my concern was let's not cut off our nose to spite our face. Let's, let's see what we think is, is going to be you know, achievable through maximum, you know, minimum impact, but maximum return kind of thing. And we went about it slowly, but carefully over a period of a couple of years before we kind of really settled on the, the three core products of window siding and doors. What were some other knock-on effects from simplifying? Knock what 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 knock on effects? So what would have what were the dominoes after got it going to a, a smaller product line? You mentioned like oh my gosh. safety and understanding was one of them. Oh my gosh, training. Where do you begin? The ability to to hire, to standardize, expand. You bring in a group of people, 20, 30 people, and you can train these people in unison on selling. And then when we you know, we we initiated our whole Field digital selling system where you you got tablet technology that you can pay you can take out and and we can do market by market pricing and get away from indiscriminate pricing that some some person's going to go and you know open up a, a three ring binder and look for a price and hopefully compute it correctly with a deduct I mean forget it once we were able to really kind of push pricing down from a from an automated integrated way with technology. A lot of that stuff is what simplified things out and, and, you know, grew margins, eliminated product lines, and really just kind of overall lift the system. You, uh, Less is more. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it. How did, did pricing change as part of that simplification where you got smarter about pricing or had more power to increase it because you were becoming better at serving customers with those products? I'll answer this two ways. Okay. Pricing, i.e. the cost we pay for the product went down. As we started selling and simplifying the system and we had response from customers going like this, our purchasing power, you know, as a retailer was meteoric. I mean, we, we could drive, you know, drive pricing from that perspective. Okay. Commensurately, our purchasing power, we were able to pass along to the consumer. Again, it's one of the value principles is why someone would buy from our company. We can provide really good products at very fair prices. Are there brighter products? Yes. Are there cheaper products? Yes. But what we do is deliver really excellent products at very fair prices with outstanding, delighting customer service. 
So it's that careful balance that I would challenge that nobody does a better job of kind of balancing those three important factors than what we do. And these issues that we talk about, product simplification, empathy, people, all these things are part of this kind of special thing that we do that we think differentiates ourselves from competitors. Because a lot of competitors out there, there's very low, but, you know, in our space, there are no barriers to entry. Anybody with a pickup truck can go to Home Depot or, a, uh, you know, any, any, any sort of retailer and go get, get window products, siding, you know, go, go anywhere. You can do it. If you're handy, you can go do it yourself. Most people don't want to do it themselves. So the reason they call us is they want a competent, fair organization to deliver the goods for them. And that's, I'd like to think, how we do it and have continued to do it for decades after decades. Does that make it difficult to pursue any sort of growth through acquisition model with a business like this? 100%. When we were looking at our initial model of expansion, we were looking at exp- we were looking at growth through acquisition. Instead, what we settled on, because we knew that, that you're going to go and, and acquire these other businesses, that you're just going to be buying some things that we otherwise would be better off building ourselves. We greenfielded everything with Feldco. There's not been anything with Feldco beyond the original purchase that was an acquisition. Our acquisitions that we've done have all been in other spaces, home security, the garage building, chimney space, elevators and lifts, We've done a lot of acquisitions in those spaces, but everything we've done to grow Feldco has been organic greenfield growth. No acquisitions have been bolted onto that. So as not to kind of challenge that whole cultural thing that I think you're you're getting into there. Yeah. So when you think of the right businesses, it sounds like they're complementary in many ways. Like one service could lead to the next for sure. the customer. How do you know which services or which ancillary products actually work well together in practice? I would tell you we don't have a definitive answer to that. And so I'd say we're, we're, we're hard at work doing that. There is a very high level of correlation between our window business and our chimney business. We, you know, our chimney business is smaller than our window business. So a portion, our chimney business really only serves Northwest, rather Chicago and Northwest Indiana. So it's a significantly smaller business. But a big part of Feldco can go along and help them out big time. It's a perfectly aligned fit. You know, homeowners in the Chicagoland area, you know, we know about these homes. We know about the profile of their homes, whether they have fireplaces. We know everything about them. We know their financial profile because they potentially have done business with us. So we can we can do a lot of that with the window chimney business. The garage business has been a little bit of a different story for us as we've learned it. One of our learnings there that we never really learned a lot about up front is the difference between city and suburban construction. It's a little more convoluted than you'd ever imagine. And it's a big thing. Listen, we've been doing Feldco for 15 years before we ever bought Danley's. And we've done plenty of construction projects in and around the Chicagoland area. The difference between installing windows and building, you know, building structures is, is night and day. And it's, it's a very different type of business. They may be complementary and similar customer profiles, but you got to understand the differences between the two organizations. It's been, a, it's been a lesson for us. Yeah. Switching gears a little bit. One topic I know we discussed earlier that you're passionate about is developing trust and respect within an organization. It kind of builds on our discussion on empathy earlier, but Jamie Shaw was a professor here. She was showing me this matrix of warmth and competence. And if you're low in both, people hate you. But if you're high in competence and warmth, people trust you. We'll be curious if that's model you've thought of or has had an impact in some way in, in building trust and respect over time. I, I'm not familiar with the model of which you speak. 
So I, 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 I can't speak to that per se, but I can speak extensively about Please. warmth and humility and, and, and connectivity with people. You know, folks, we're not in this by ourselves. You, you need other people here. And so you, in your own genuine way, have to figure out a way to bring people along. And it's got to be true to whoever you are, because if it's not true, it's going to come across as phony and it's not going to work. But you got to learn yourself. How, why do people like you? Why are people your friends? There's a, there's a good start as to why you may be a successful boss. And my guess is people are your friend because they trust you. They respect you. They have a good time with you. The commonalities of, of, of friendship. Play on those as a boss, as a leader. What, why is somebody working here at the end of the day? Ask yourself that as a leader. Why would somebody work here? Would you work here? What is it? What, 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 what's it about? You better understand what's the answer to those questions. And those aren't necessarily questions they're going to teach you how to answer in, in Chicago or a Kellogg. This is kind of stuff that's like high school stuff. It's real basic, but you got to understand people. And you, and you spend some time and in, in, in front of a mirror and why might somebody not buy what it is I'm selling? Here's one for you. I was talking to somebody about this earlier. Three folks came to me and, and they said they, they have this idea. They want to go and, and buy this company. And, and they, they've got this, this trio of partnership. And the three of them all bring a little bit different acumen to the equation. One's a data guy, technology guy. One's a, an engineer. And, and then one's a, a finance person. And they're, they're boasting about what the target is. And, and they have defined goals as to how each of them are going to kind of proceed moving forward. And um, I said to them, I said, okay, great. It sounds like all of you have, you know, very defined skills. Congratulations. Who's in charge of sales? Who's running the sales ship here? And I get, you know, well, you know, he and she and do this and that. And, and that's when I say, time out, guys, time out. Sales is one of the most important things a leader has to embrace. Okay. And I'm not talking about negotiating in the sense of, oh, I'll pay you this or I'll pay you that or, hey, buy this thing or that, whatever. Everything you're doing is selling a vision. You're, you're selling a direction. And if people aren't buying what it is you're selling, I guarantee you, you ain't going anywhere. So you better understand what people are going to buy that it is you're selling. And you better understand if your, your process of selling selling the idea, the vision, the plan, whatever it might be, is in sync with them or whoever your customer may be. But the ability to, to embrace that concept of whether you like it or not, you as the boss is the, is the, is the chief salesperson. And that's just something that you've got to wear. And so being able to sell, being able to work with people in ways that in some cases, they don't feel like they're being sold, but yet that's part of, you know, being a capable leader that, that has range and can, can deliver their message to a variety of people to achieve your goals. Yeah, when I think of a, a talented, you know, prototypical salesperson, I think of someone who's very you know, outgoing, charismatic, great speaker. Has that always been the case with the greatest sales CEOs that you've met or is it all over the place? Lots of different. It's great. all over the place. It's all over the place. 
the best sales. Does anybody here remember a show by the name of WKRP in Cincinnati? Or am I too old for that? That's, I'm way too old here. There was like this classic show back in you know an era gone by, but it was about a radio station, and they had this sales guy on it whose name was Herb Tarlick. And he was this quintessential, like, dirty sales guy. Like, Herb Tarlick would show up, and he felt like he had to go take a shower after he was done with you. That's the perception of a lot of sales, that, you know, you're being sold or you're selling it, being sold the used car. I've seen people who are the brightest, most talented individual take a very different tack to selling. And and it's more of a, what I'll call an informed, educated you know, approach. You're being informed from like an intellectual level, but at the end of the day, you're being sold. But it's being done in a different non-Herb Tarlick way. And at the end of the day, you kind of say, boy, I really respect this person's intelligence. He or she knows this product really well, backward and forward, and it's a good product based on what this person, because they've, they've earned my respect. They're, they're a sound, logical you know, presenter here. And so they just don't, they come across in a sales way that's just non-salesy, more folksy in some cases. Yeah, I think of folksy CEOs that I admire. I, I flew around Southwest and I love studying Herb Keller, Keller, who is, I think, one of the greatest like sellers type of CEOs. Sure. And he was on the planes all the time. He would sit with customers and hear from them all and what's going on and was really, really good at selling that vision. Is there any CEO in particular that you've gotten to know who you admire? Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. You know, there's there's some 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 people who uh, are you folks familiar with YPO Young Presidents Organization? Okay, I hope all of you folks are successful enough in in your entrepreneurial pursuits to put yourself in YPO one day. It's a fantastic organization. It's a peer organization that exposes you to peers like yourself that are running businesses that have similar challenges, and you can you can work with, be educated by, and 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 all that. So. Putting yourself in, in an environment that you can get good, candid feedback, and I've shared some of it with you already here tonight, about that, that, that you get through YPO. So always make sure you put yourself in, in places that you can get good, solid feedback. And, and organizations like YPO have immeasurable return for you. Does that kind of get where you're, you're going with that? Yeah, I've heard great things about YPO and from folks I know who are in it speak extremely highly of it to find peers like them. As as an entrepreneur, it's really important to understand early stage, you're going to be very isolated, okay? It's a really isolating thing. You're not going to have a deep reservoir of people around you. And you need to make sure, whether it's advisors, a board of directors, or a third-party organization like YPO, and there's a, there's a number of other organizations out there. Make sure you join those organizations that are a good fit for you, that can give you some good feedback about where you're at as a as a leader, where you're at as a professional, and as a good resource for for anything you may need. But those outside organizations are are ways to kind of you know fight off that isolation of entrepreneurship that can often set in early in one's career until you start building something more frothy and you're able to get out there and establish those external relationships that are important. Wrapping things up, what's a strongly held belief you've switched your mind on? Mm, There's a few of them. The customer is always right. The customer is not always right. (laughs) But you got to figure out how they always feel right. (laughs) That's a big thing. 
working through a business with subjectivity where, you know, we, we could say that we're done. We've, we've installed, this looks beautiful. Well, I don't think it does. How do you address that? It's not black and white per se, but it's installed and, you know, everything's done. It's beautiful. It's perfect. No, it's not. How do you work with that? So long held belief, I would say is I used to think that you could live in a black and white world. Our business is anything, but it's gray. And so you, you have to make decisions and get comfortable working with the, the off, off colors, grays and, and, and so forth. And I never thought that would be where I was, but it's the reality of what you have to do to succeed and take things that are less than perfect. 80% is sometimes better than zero. I'd prefer 100, sometimes 80% is better. So those kinds of lessons in life. Pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. What's the best business you've come across, excluding businesses that you own, except maybe your elevator one? That sounds really interesting. Oh, a lot of great businesses out there. I love consumer-facing businesses. I love really, I love businesses where, where people have done some really exciting things. Grubhub, really cool. Very you know, basic type of thing, but where technology has been woven in that was right kind of in our YPO group. Really interesting business. They've obviously had some challenges as they've, as they've aged. There's, there's a lot of uh, businesses that I've seen over the years that would be considered dirty businesses that you know, might be a bakery or a manufacturer or something that's... Mm-hmm. And just watching some of those cool things be built. And, and I've, I've really enjoyed watching food and going into food manufacturing over the years. I looked at a lot of businesses there. Those are really really fascinating businesses, especially businesses where technology has gotten involved and they've, they've kind of evolved some, some products over the years. Alex Schneider's done some stuff with that. So there's a lot of really interesting things, but at the root of it is always have curiosity to ask what people are doing, because that's where you might hear some really cool stuff out there because there's a lot of great stuff going on. I love that. Well, thank you so much for sharing in this uh, second live podcast I've done all time. And thank you all for having me and and joining and being a part of it. It's good to visit Chicago and be in the city more. So only in Omaha. So I'm surprised it took me this long to get here, but excited to be here. So thank you for having me. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Think Like an Owner. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Hood & Strong, Oberly Risk Strategies, and Ravix Group for supporting the podcast. For full episode transcripts on our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at tlaopodcast.com.